Welcome to Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donahue. Today's topic is slavery and reparations. The story of exploitation in the Americas is sordid and tragic. Christopher Columbus's first log entry upon meeting the Arawaks of the Bahamas was, quote, they brought us many things. They willingly traded everything they owned. They do not bear arms. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want, end quote. From the genocide of Native Americans, to slavery, to contemporary attitudes and injustices, whites have subjugated, oppressed, and marginalized other cultures based on the color of their skin. Today, we will focus on slavery and reparations. From the 16th to the 19th centuries, between 10 million and 12 million Africans were transported across the Atlantic Ocean to perform backbreaking labor. They built much of our government's infrastructure and many of our universities. Since the formal end of slavery, African Americans have remained an oppressed group, despite the long-delayed gains made by the Civil Rights Movement. Remarkably, just over 1,700 Confederate symbols remain standing in the U.S., including 718 monuments and statues. Only 113 of these have been removed since the 2017 white supremacist Charleston rally and murder of anti-racism protester Heather Heyer. Today, under our racist, xenophobic president, hate groups are ascendant, and yet so are movements to demand equality and reparations. Nevertheless, for most African Americans, progress has been glacially slow. Full-time African Americans earn 75% of what white earns, the median income of black U.S. families as a percent of white U.S. families was 60% in 1968 and is only about 62% today. The median net worth of white households is 10 times higher than that of black households. Home ownership rates are 73% for whites and 43% for African Americans. 7.5% of blacks live in substandard housing versus just 3% of whites. Rates of poverty in blacks are two and a half times those among whites. In part because of apartheid-like zoning laws and lending discrimination, many African Americans live in de facto segregated communities with inadequately funded substandard schools. Consequently, high school graduation rates are stagnant and achievement gaps are growing. Polluting factories and toxic waste dumps are more common in poor African American neighborhoods. Voter restriction measures with the stated aim of eliminating the nearly non-existent problem of voter fraud, have led to widespread disenfranchisement. Furthermore, while violent crime is associated with poverty, not race, African Americans are more likely to be stopped by the police through so-called stop-and-frisk programs or simply driving while black, and to be abused, arrested, denied bail, charged with a serious crime, convicted, and receive a harsher sentence. Not surprisingly, blacks suffer stress consequent to ongoing racism and poverty, which leads to myriad adverse health consequences. African Americans have lower life expectancies and are more likely to lack health insurance and suffer higher death rates for most diseases. In many ways, the ongoing consequences of racism can be traced directly back to slavery. My guest for the next two episodes is Thomas Loviste, Dean professor and Weathered presidential chair in health equity at Tulane University's School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Dean Leviste is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and the author of numerous publications, including the books Minority Populations and Health, 
Race, Ethnicity, and Health with Lydia Isaac, and Legacy of the Crossing, Life, Death, and Triumph Among Descendants of the World's Greatest Forced Migration. We will discuss slavery, its legacy, reparations, and his vision for the future. Dr. Lavise, thank you so much for joining us on our program today. Oh, thank you for the invitation to be on your show. It's an honor. Uh, I would like to first have a conversation about slavery in pre-colonial societies before we come to the African-American experience and the transatlantic slave trade. And we know that slavery goes back at least to early civilizations in Mesopotamia and so on. But if you could kind of bring us up to the transatlantic slave trade for our viewers, that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, the American experience with slavery begins shortly after uh, Europeans discover that there's another half of the planet, right? The, the Western Hemisphere is discovered. And what's discovered is that there are natural resources that can be exploited and, and could build wealth. There are also people on the, and then other, on the other half of the planet, the other Western Hemisphere. So going, coming over to the Western Hemisphere to exploit those natural resources required a combination of, you know, you needed to have labor to be able to exploit those resources, and you needed to also have the ability to defend yourself against the indigenous people who live there. So the colonies suffered greatly because of labor shortages and ability to um, brave the harsh winters that they hadn't been accustomed to and learned a great deal from the indigenous Native American population on how to survive. But also there was this need for labor. This was always a struggle for, um, for the colonists. Mm -hmm. They tried to enslave um, the, the, the um, indigenous population and did. Not very successfully, however, because in part because they were much more, much better familiar with the environment, and as they, if they escaped, they were able to get away. It was difficult to find them. They were able to find other tribes, join tribes, and um, it was difficult to enslave a population in its own land. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we would look beyond the indigenous populations became um, became popular. In 1619 about 20 Africans landed in Jamestown, Virginia, not as slaves, but as indentured servants, which at the time was the most common way that uh, Europeans came over um, to, to the, the New World, which is mm -hmm. what the colonies were called at the time. Indentured servant, uh, servitude basically meant that you would be, um, you would barter your work, you would work on someone's plantation for a period of time usually four to seven years. After that period of time ended, you would be, you'd be freed, you'd be given some land, and so you'd be, have an opportunity to begin your own life here in the New World. In, in return, the plantation owners would pay for passage for people to come over, and this was the deal. And this was actually quite common at the time. So in 1619, the Africans came. They didn't come through the normal uh, indentured servants uh, process that uh, Europeans were coming from. They came through uh, a Dutch ship that la that landed uh, in uh, in Virginia with these human beings and said, "Listen, you know, we can make these humans available to you to work here in the Jamestown colony." And they did that. So they were indentured servants. And were these the mostly men or men and women and families? What was the population? They were men and women and families. Okay was recorded that there were children as well, men, mm -hmm. women, and children. Mm -hmm. So this was 1619. So now we fast forward to the year 1640. We did not have a framework, a legal framework for slavery in the country. 
you know, we didn't have many laws at all. In fact, the laws were just being created. In fact, uh, Francis Wyatt, who was at the time governor of Virginia, um, uh, established the first set of laws in Virginia, which basically became the framework for the Constitution of Virginia and ultimately the Constitution of the United States. It's mm -hmm. largely built on that framework that he brought over. And as part of that, he also uh, presided over the court. And so the, any, any court um, uh, uh, proceedings that had to happen in Virginia was presided over by the, by the um, governor. And this is why this is important. In 1640, three men who were indentured servants escaped from the plantation where they were servants. Mm -hmm. Two were white, one was black. The black man's name was John Punch. The three men escaped and went to, to uh, Maryland. The, uh, the, the, the plantation owner went to the court and said, these three servants escaped. We need to send um, people after them and have them brought back here to Virginia. And that is what happened. They were captured and they were brought back. So the two white indentured servants were um, sentenced to 30 lashes with the whip mm -hmm. and three additional years of service. Mm -hmm. But the black man, John Punch, was sentenced to 30 lashes with the whip and life as an indentured servant. Hmm. This was the first legal precedent, the court order, that created the framework for the idea that people could be forced to be uh, in servitude for life. Now, as this an aside, I'd like to mention, I, I, I went through pretty good schools, took U.S. history, um, and later in life read Howard Zinn. Um, yeah. I'm not familiar with John Punch, and I can imagine yeah. that most people are not. Yes. I think this is a big problem, that the, we have a quite fascinating history. I'm not a historian, I'm sort of, but I am fascinated by history mm -hmm. and uh, read as much of it as I can. But so much of that history is not really taught in this country. And so we don't really know how things came to be as they are. And as a result, there are a lot of misconceptions about contemporary inequity and how those inequities are really historical in their in their genesis. And I think a lot of that history relates to uh, European and white exceptionalism, uh, manifest destiny to even uh, World War One and World War Two, and how they were sometimes argued. Uh, there's a piece in Harper's Magazine this month that talks about the perpetual war and Marshall's comments getting us into World War Two. That basically, the reason for this was to spread democracy, but also to become so powerful that no nation could ever defend us. And I, I think the sense of, of, of European and white exceptionalism has clouded much of the teaching of history and of the slave experience uh, in, in the United States. Um, I've seen that even in my, what my niece and nephew are learning. Well, certainly the fact that there are so many Confederate monuments still in existence very few of those monuments were actually built around the Civil War. Most of them were built between the uh, 1940s and the 1960s in response to the uh, civil rights movements mm -hmm. and, and others who were, who were fighting for um, uh, racial justice. And many of those were supported by tax dollars, I understand. Many of them still are supported by tax dollars. And it's a it's a really a fascinating thing. And it gets right to the ideology you were talking about. It's a fascinating thing. Now, this is the only case that I can think of where uh, people who waged war against the United States government and actually killed actual American soldiers mm -hmm. lost the war, but yet, in many ways, they won the narrative. You right. still see 
I drive past a street named after Jefferson Davis every day to come to work. Huh. Jefferson Davis was a traitor who committed crimes against the United States and killed many American soldiers and led other Americans to their, to their death. Right. But we have, we have monuments and streets named after him. Right. So let's come back to John Punch. Uh, then what sure. happened? So what happened is now we have this legal framework, right? We have this court precedent that establishes the fact that it's possible to have someone be a slave for life. What began to happen throughout the colonies is that laws began to be passed, which would um, further um, uh, sort of go down the, 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 the path that that framework creates. Things like, for example, it used to be that if an African who had been who were in, who was enslaved converted to Christianity, then they would be free because a Christian couldn't be enslaved. Mm -hmm. So that was changed. That law was a law passed to change that. This happened in New York State because many of the Africans began to convert to Christianity. There was also, you know, uh, slave uh, women who were enslaved were being exploit exploited sexually. By by uh, by men by white men and they were producing children. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens to those children? Well, mm -hmm. there was a, a law was passed that said that if uh, the mother was a slave, whatever the legal status of your mother was became the legal status of the child. So therefore, you could be born into slavery. Right. right. So and in every, every other way, we're a very, we've been a very much patrilineal society. I mean, women didn't get the vote in this country yes. until the early 1900s. And yet in this one particular instance, as a way to perpetuate the subjugation, they decided on a matrilineal policy. That's interesting. Yeah. We are so uh, patrilineal in this, in this society <laughs> that black men got the right to vote before white women did. Mm -hmm. Think right. about that one. Right, right. And it's and, important um, to know, you, you mentioned sexual slavery. I, I, just as an aside, we should mention that there, the estimates of contemporary slavery are that there are about 40 million enslaved people on the planet, and about half of these are working in agriculture, mining, construction, uh, basically all over the world. About 12.5% are in sexual slavery, and about... 37.5% are basically in forced marriage. So this is, this is still an ongoing problem and, and, and involves the subjugation of the so-called lesser races as perceived by the country doing the exploitation and, of course, the subjugation of women. Yeah. So, um, so back to uh, this, this policy then. That, that but can I say one more thing about, sure. about the, point, the point you just made? Yeah. I think it's important to point out here that the, the ideology that you talked about, the white, which you basically described as white supremacy, mm -hmm. the, the ideology exists in service to capitalism. Right. So the point is, it's not that capitalism produces the ideology or that the ideology is really um, driving this. The ideology is what is just what is used to justify the need to be to exploit the free the, the, the labor. So what this is really all about is how do we get access to cheap labor, mm -hmm. and slavery is one of the solutions. And we build an ideology that allows us to justify the exploitation. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll do a, a little bit of self-promotion just to make my mother happy here. Is that, uh, if you go to the Public Health and Social Justice website, on the Activism and Education page, there are some open access PowerPoints that basically run anywhere up to, I think, 300 slides that give a review of the consequences of corporate malfeasance for public health, mostly in the contemporary setting. 
Um, so coming back uh, to, um, I, I want to move forward from 1640, but I'd like you also to describe for me before we come forward historically, what the experience was like from being captured often in the interior of, of sub-Saharan Africa, transported to the coast and coming across the slave ships. Um, because it, the, the conditions were absolutely horrific. And so help us to feel that. It's very difficult to, to do what you're asking. But what I can say is um, I, I experienced this at, um, at the African American Museum in Detroit, mm -hmm. where they have a replica of a slave ship, which sort of gives you a sense of what that would have been like. So imagine people crowded in the hull of a slave ship laying side by side, filling the room with not more than a few inches to, to move. At best, you could roll over on one side versus the other, but you really couldn't get up, you couldn't walk around, you couldn't move. Shackled. Yeah, and chained, mm -hmm. of course. So if you, if you imagine those conditions, and we think about this, you know, about how, how um, we would respond to that condition uh, today, you know, there would be, we would, there would be mental health issues that you would expect to have, right? Mm -hmm. The physical health issues, of course, I mean, you're going to have infectious diseases. There's going to be all sorts of infectious diseases there. Mm -hmm. There's going to be injuries that will be, that will occur. There's going to be some violence because people are going to strike out. There's all sorts right. of things going to happen. So just surviving the Middle Passage is already um, an incredible triumph mm -hmm. if you just made it across the Atlantic. But then, when you get to the other side of the ocean, you're in, in a, you're, you are literally on the other side of the planet, literally, in a completely foreign land where people don't speak language that you that you speak. And in fact, while you were on the slave ship, many of the people in the whole of that slave ship with you did not speak the language that you spoke, and in many cases, may have been from tribes that were rival tribes, and they may, you know, there, there might even be, you know, people who would be. Um, um, violent against you because you're from one of the rival tribes. So these, these are the conditions you're living under, being fed just enough to stay alive and having to survive that horror. It's, it's an absolute horror. But you get to this other part of the planet now where things are different. Things look different. The trees look different. Mm -hmm. The climate is different. The temperature is different. You get snow. You're coming from a part of the world where you don't see that, you know, and you have to adjust to this new reality and people are forcing you to work. And to abandon your language and culture as a form of subjugation, because the more you speak your language with your fellow slaves, I imagine, the more likely you are to try to stage even the most minor of revolts or escapes. So uh, the subjugation of that culture began right from the get-go? The, well, it begins in the slave ship, right? Because right. The, the ability to, to survive requires that the people that are being subjugated in this way create a new culture, a mm. culture that allows them to survive the insanity of the Middle Passage. Right. So you must develop enough language skills to be able to speak to each other, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And you have to develop a set of values and behaviors and practices, which is what a culture is, to be able to survive. Mm -hmm. So the African-American culture actually begins at this point with the, an amalgamation of the many cultures of Africa that were brought together in that slave ship, 
but this new culture, this new African-American culture is created to survive, mm -hmm. to make it through. Mm -hmm. So in this process, I imagine families were torn apart, um, husbands and wives separated, children separated from their parents. Um, that's going on today to some degree, certainly not of the magnitude that happened uh, with the Middle Passage. So, um, but how did that affect marriage and family ties in, in the early African-American culture and experience? Well, everything we know about it suggests that marriage and family ties were quite strong, even during slavery, mm -hmm. that um, many of the revolts and people who tried to escape, or, or even some who did successfully escape, did so because they were trying to reunite with their families. And mm -hmm. I think those family ties have always been extremely strong and still remain strong within black communities. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. it's somewhat of a misnomer that slavery destroyed black family ties or the desire to have a family or to have those those familiar relationships. I was thinking more along the lines of the separations that occurred initially when someone was brought out of the interior and separated from who might be their spouse or child oh, in yes. that area. Yeah, not, not more, certainly yeah. they, they created their own culture and the ties are very strong and remain strong to this day and I think it's, um, it's the way many successful public health initiatives for the African-American community, and I'm, you know, I have no right to say this to you, being a, a limousine liberal Caucasian, but, but many successful public health initiatives in the African-American community have involved the family and involved the community. Um, so As have many public health uh, um, activities that exploited the community, such as the <laughs> syphilis experiment, exactly. utilized a great deal of knowledge and understanding of black culture to be able to pull that off. Exactly, yeah. And as an aside, we had a previous program entitled Doctors Gone Bad. If you haven't seen that, we discussed Tuskegee and, and also what happened during uh, the Nazi uh, and Japanese trials that took place during World War II. So bring us from 1640 onward in the United States. How did this grow uh, and how did slavery become an entrenched institution? So what happens is that over time, colonies begin to pass laws that that basically reinforce and create this legal framework for slavery. With the uh, Consti Constitutional Convention, there's, uh, there are provisions in the Constitution where they are determining how do we how do we uh, do apportionment for Congress. So how do we count to determine which colonies or which states get how many? How many representatives and House of representatives? It was decided that um, the slate, the, the south, the, the states in the South that had more slaves. Of course, if we counted the slaves, it would mean that they would get more votes in Congress. The North didn't want that, mm -hmm. so there was ultimately a compromise that said, well, African Americans would be three, would be counted as three fifths of a mm -hmm. person. Um, mm -hmm. So this sort of, although the, the three fifths compromise was not, in was not. The purpose of it was not to say that African Americans are not full human beings. The effect was that's what it said, right, in mm -hmm. the U.S. Constitution that African Americans are not full full human beings and not mm -hmm. counted as such. Mm -hmm. And this also was part of the ideology. So again, the ideology is in service to the goal of maintaining power and control over of over the natural resources, which is what government is and which is what capitalism is all about. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. We move forward into uh, the Civil War, and the Civil War uh, happens, the Civil War ends, and we move into Reconstruction, right? This is a period of time when the North um, that won the war is 
uh, still occupies the South, trying to think about how do we go about rebuilding the Southern part of this country, because if the Union is going to stay intact as a country, we need to ensure that the South is able to catch up. And um, they pass a series of laws that uh, begin to create um, equity. Um, we have even uh, African Americans elected to Congress during that period of time. So, so reparations lasted only only 11 years, ending in 1876, and it ended in an attempt to get the Southern Democrats to support the contentious election of Rutherford B. Hayes. This was called the Hayes-Tilton Compromise. And the compromise was that the Southern Democrats would go ahead and support Hayes as the new president, but he would agree to remove troops from the South and allow the South to take control, which meant enact laws that would disadvantage African-Americans and repeal the laws from the from Reconstruction that had been developed that would attempt mm -hmm. to bring reparations for slavery. Mm -hmm. The laws that ensued after that are the Black Codes or the Jim Crow laws, which came into effect right around 1876 up to, let's say, 19, I would say 1964 with the Pets of Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. That period of time, we now have these these black uh, black law, uh, the black codes or the Jim Crow laws, which in many ways are, if not as bad as slavery, practically as bad as slavery, mm -hmm. because um, at least during slavery, if you were considered the property of a powerful person who owned uh, a plantation and who was a landowner, you at least had the the protection of that person and his resources to uh, and and he had an incentive to maintain your, your, your health and life at least enough to be able to exploit your labor enough to reco recover his investment. But after slavery ends and you have Jim Crow, there is no one to intercede mm -hmm. because there is no one who has an economic incentive um, to support your survival and your, your, um, your continued functioning. So the Jim Crow era is possibly even worse than, uh, than the slave era because of that. And these laws were supported at all levels of government, including the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So in, it begins in the Constitution. So in the, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution ends slavery, right? But it also provides a provision in it that says it ends slavery except for people who are incarcerated. And it allows people who are incarcerated to continue to be, to have their labor exploited. And this still is happening today. And it's one of the major drivers of mass incarceration, right? which we see today. Exactly. There is so much to unpack here. We have reached the end of our first episode. I want to thank Dr. Laviste for joining me. In our next episode, we're going to go further forward take us through the civil rights era to some of the contemporary inequities facing the African-American community, and then a little bit about reparations and Dr. Levis's vision for the future of race relations uh, and equity between the races. I want to thank you all for joining us. My name is Martin Donahue. This has been Prescription for Justice.